And this is what's so unique about this program is it truly is a partnership with the government. If you don't get shared savings, they don't get shared savings. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance podcast. My name is Bob Wade, and I am your host. Well, today I am delighted to have an an expert in the field dealing with accountable care organizations. I have Kelly Conroy. Kelly is a principal at Pinnacle Healthcare Consulting. So first off, I want Kelly to introduce herself and also her firm. Thank you, Bob. Um, yes, my name is Kelly Conroy. I'm a principal at Pinnacle Healthcare Consultant in the strategy division, mainly focusing on value-based care. And I also like to have a really tight focus on ACOs since I started running ACOs about 10 years ago when they first came out. So I really like to focus on ACOs, but can focus on anything in value-based care. Pinnacle's been around since 1998 and has many divisions like fair market value, which ties in beautifully with the Stark and anti-kickback rules. They do a lot of transactional work, a lot of strategy work. And we work with healthcare attorneys, um, health plans, providers, independent providers, um, and um, direct to employers, pretty much anybody in the healthcare space. We have worked with them. We are a national company and we've been around since 1998. And Kelly has been involved in healthcare for greater than 30 years. So uh, same as I, so some of uh, we're, we're long-termers uh, in the healthcare industry. And I have worked with Pinnacle Healthcare and some of its principals with my clients around the country too. So they are a stellar firm uh, with respect to the services they provide, not only with fair market value, but also with structure and organizations for healthcare organizations. And if you're listening to this episode, we're gonna, going to be focusing on accountable care organizations, but also... Uh, if you have not listened to the value-based arrangement episode on Stark Integrity, I would encourage you to listen to the November 16, 2021 episode, where I walk through this new value-based arrangements, value-based enterprises, healthcare is full of all these acronyms, VBA, VBEs, ACOs, et cetera. And in that episode, I go into great detail about the new value-based arrangements. And even though the primary focus of this presentation with Kelly is going to be on accountable care organizations or ACOs will also reference uh, the value-based arrangements uh, in this episode. So Kelly, you indicated that you uh, started the first Medicare ACO in the country. Can you explain what that was all about and give us a little bit of background of ACOs? 
Sure, I'd be happy to. And I think it's a great way to explain to people what an ACO is. So back in 2011, when the Federal Register rules came out about Medicare shared savings ACOs, you may remember that's when the government approved through the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, $10 million to go to something called the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. And that's where the ACOs came out in 2011. Um, the pioneer ACOs, I do not believe, had a very good experience. So there was a lot of very negative talk about it. And it basically was a way, it was an introduction to a way to pay providers differently other than just for volume. So I was extremely interested in it because I've worked in many sectors of the healthcare field in my career. And I thought this is the first thing that I've read that could actually change, turn the Titanic on how we're being paid based off of RVUs. And many of your listeners may know that every year it's kind of like you take a little bit from some specialist and give it a little bit to other specialists. So every year everybody held their breath about what kind of reimbursement they would get. So when I read about this, I went and at the time I ran a large imaging network and I went to the imaging network and I said, you guys always like to have events for physicians. Can we bring physicians together and tell them what ACOs are? And they said, sure. So I brought somebody in from DC to explain it to us because back then there was probably less than 50 people in the country that even knew what ACOs were. And I brought a hundred doctors together in a room and you know, once she explained it to them, I saw real disruption in that room. The physicians, half the room was like, wow, we could get 50% shared savings if we could do things better and coordinate better with people in hospitals. You know, we know how to do that, no problem. And the other half of the room was, this is just another trick by the government to continue to lower our reimbursement, you know. So it was very disruptive. So I knew we were on to something. So they that, said that's a typical trick that the government does. A lot of physicians will say, well, what is this? There's got to be something where the government's saving money on this and, and we're not actually financially benefiting. But this is definitely a way for physicians to benefit. Well, it is because re remember, and this is really important that it's on top of your fee for service. So nothing changes with the way you currently operate. You still get paid the way you've always got paid in the past. However, if you meet all these quality measures and you meet all these things and you actually reduce the amount of spending on a population of people by providing better care, then you get what they call shared savings on top of it. So they said, go ahead and uh, see what you can do. And I don't know how this happened, but um, I was staking out the website and a notice of intent to apply showed up. I filled it out. I got uh, ACO number 1001. So I called them up and I said, did you start at one or did you start at a thousand? <laughs> and they said, we started at a thousand. We know you're the first ACO. So I used that information about us being the first to really motivate these doctors. I had pulled 200 doctors together, half of them specialists and half of them primary care, which I think even to 10 years later is still unique. Most ACO companies or enablement companies really focus on the primary care. So I think having those specialists in there was really unique to us and, and it also helped a lot. And uh, so we had the very first number in the country and being in Palm Beach County, Florida, we didn't want, want to show up on the front of the Palm Beach Post. So I said, I used this as a way to just, we got to keep working at it because it was really hard to get the message across to the physicians and their staff, how to do things a little bit differently. So we started and the first place we decided to start, there was obviously a lot of people that didn't understand it, is to do annual wellness visits on patients. We decided that we should bring in patients. We should do annual wellness visits on them. We can do all their ACO quality measures on them. 
We can understand how sick they are, make a good care plan for them. And on top of that, that brought additional fee-for-service to the doctors. So all the little naysayers in the group or some of the naysayers in the group realized we could do annual wellness visits. It's good for the patient. It's good for the practice. So they started doing annual wellness visits. And at the time, only 10% of the country had done annual wellness visits. So we worked really hard to get that up to 60 to 70%. So what that really did was brought the patients into us to see. So this, this whole concept of an ACO is taking care of the continuum of the patient and not just when they come to see you. And it was really highlighted to me when I said to one of the physicians, he said, all my diabetics are controlled. I said, how do you know? And he said, because I see them and I control their diabetes. And I said, what about the ones that don't come to see you? And I honestly, that was the light bulb moment. You know, that's the denominator of patients that do not come into your office, do not access primary care. They just maybe go to the hospital. They just don't access primary care. So we pretty much were in the business of taking care of sick patients. So this was really, really trying to turn the Titanic to preventatively take care of patients and bring them in. So that's how we got started. Um, it took, we started April 1st, 2012. We were the very first cohort. Um, they then moved us up to the year 2013 before they would reconcile our our book. So you, I can't even begin to tell you how hard it was to continue to have everybody on the team working for 22 months before they told us if we had shared savings. However, it was worth it because we did have shared savings of about $39 million. We saved the government and the government split that back to us. So $19 million came back into our ACO. And this is what's so unique about this program is it truly is a partnership with the government. If you don't get shared savings, they don't get shared savings. So that's how it all started. Yeah, that's that's fascinating that you were 1001. So yeah. it, it's always neat when you're at the front end of these, uh, these models. Uh, and especially if we have executives who are listening to this episode, uh, usually the executives will sit down and listen or the lawyers or compliance officers will listen to these episodes and then they will have to share it with physicians. So I would encourage listeners to share this episode with your physician so they can understand that not only is there a quality aspect uh, to ACOs as well as value-based arrangements, but there's also a financial, a positive financial impact that will occur. So focusing on that, Kelly, primary care physicians, I understand that a a lot of the government's focus has been on primary care physicians as a participant in an ACO. Can you explain why uh, primary care physicians should be part of an ACO? I'll take that one step further, Bob. I believe every primary care physician in the country should be in an ACO. They are doing this good and necessary work, and they're not getting paid additional on top of their fee-for-service for doing it. So I hope that, uh, like you said, people will share this with primary care physicians because if you look at a heat map of where ACOs are, there's a whole swath of the country that are not in ACOs. And I find that fascinating. And the government is making some steps to, to change that. But to get back to your question about why are primary care doctors, the participants, or the, at least the main participants, it's largely due to how do we assign a population to an ACO? So when an ACO comes together, it's a group of providers and it could be a hospital, hospital provider, but the PCP is the person who delivers care to the patient. So they have to assign the patients to the PCPs that are in the ACOs. 
So a PCP can sign up to be in an ACL and the patient may not even know that their doctor's in an ACL. They likely won't even really realize much difference in the care other than they may be asked to come in for some more preventative care. They may now find that the doctor knows when they go in the hospital. They may now find that their doctor knows when they go into a skilled nursing facility because at the end of the day, what we're really trying to do is coordinate the care better. How many mistakes happen to your family members, my family members, people we know, healthcare is broken. So when you have that PCP acting as your champion or your advocate to make sure you get the medications you're supposed to, or make sure that they coordinate with the specialist that you're supposed to, that's when it all comes together. So that's why the PCP is extremely important in this process. And that's how the government uses a methodology for attribution and attributing patients into an ACO. And just one last thing, you, you need to have at least 5,000 patients in an ACO to be an ACO. Yeah, one of the things, and I'm all about linkage of various legal as well as compliance issues on this podcast, and I've hammered fair market value routinely uh, on these episodes. And so I think, Kelly, a lot of physicians will say, well, I already have a quality component in my compensation arrangement. Isn't that the same thing? However, you know, just a quality component of a compensation arrangement is governed by the fair market value requirements under the Stark Law as well as the anti-kickback statute. And here, the compensation is directed at outcomes, not necessarily services. So that's the, the, the disconnect if a physician has his hat on and says, well, I'm already being paid for quality uh, under a quality compensation arrangement, there's a whole greener pasture out there for ACOs and value-based arrangements, correct? That is correct. And so those initial quality type things, pay for performance, MIPS, these were all baby steps to try to change the reimbursement system, but it wasn't moving quickly enough, right? So that's why the ACO came and really to drive, you know, the triple aim is better, healthier people for a population of people and smarter spending. We know that about a third of our healthcare dollars are wasteful. So that's the whole point is clean up this wastefulness. And I got to say, largely just coordinating care better cleans up a lot of the wastefulness. And I've referenced the value-based arrangements at the beginning of this episode, and part of the purpose of a value-based arrangement are the coordination and management of care, the improving of uh, care management or quality, reducing cost to patients, and also transition of the compensation model from volume to value. So if there are differences between an ACO and a value-based arrangement, Kelly, what are those differences? I think they're very similar. Um, Bob, as you know, and, and maybe you can talk about it here, but there's a lot of new rules that if you are a value-based care entity that takes more than nominal amount of risk, then you can have relationships that you couldn't have before. I'll give you an example, and then Bob, maybe you can speak to this. I, I'm working with um, some people that build ambulatory surgery centers, and before they could never really put the primary care physician in it as a partner. Now they can, as long as they're all working for the same goal, which in this case may be not having the procedure in an inpatient setting and maybe having it in an outpatient setting. But if the primary care is now involved in that, then they have easy access to that record. They can see what's going on. So I think that these rules um, really benefit. It's really almost like taking Stark and the anti-kickbacks and pushing them down a little bit to let people make the kinds of partnerships, the kinds of alignments that are aligned to properly care for a population of people. 
Yeah, Kelly, and I, and I think the example that you gave with respect to an ambulatory surgery center is dead on. Uh, that uh, under the ownership structures, under the anti-kickback statute and the Stark Law, there are definitely limitations. But you can have an ACO as well as a value-based arrangement that are around such entities like ambulatory surgery centers. And as Kelly, you, you referenced, there are three different types of value-based arrangements. One is kind of a general value-based arrangement. The other one is a meaningful downside risk. And the other one is full financial risk. And that's the reason why for listeners, if you want to go into granular detail about value-based arrangements, then listen to that episode that I referenced uh, that was recorded in November. One specialty group that I like to work with, or I am working with, is radiation oncology and urology have always wanted to come together in a more meaningful type relationship. So people often ask me, how do we set up a value-based entity? And I really think it, it's not simple, but I think it's what I would call a shadow ACO. So you find me talking about ACOs all the time since I you know, started them and ran them for 10 years. But I think if you do all of the components or many of the components that the government puts out there, a very clear list of how to be an ACO and what you need to do, if you can create what I call a shadow ACO, I think it kicks off most of the components that you would need to be in compliance with the law for the value-based care entities. Obviously, you would need legal advice for that, but when people want to operationalize a VBE, I start with the governance of an ACO and just you know, pretty much start it like an ACO. And since they're specialists, they don't get patients assigned to them, but it doesn't mean that they don't have to monitor their quality and they have to check on it quarterly, semi-annually, annually, but it's got to have processes in place that it's not just an arrangement to, you know, make a lot of money for people. It's got to be an arrangement that is moving and working towards that triple aim. Yeah, and with value-based arrangements, obviously having a, a separate governance uh, with respect to the indicators or the purpose of the value-based arrangement, especially getting into uh, the, the quality of care issues and making sure that you're hitting those expected goals. Uh, but the, the beauty in all of this is that you're not encumbered by the fair market value limitations. Uh, as long as you're achieving uh, stated quality goals, then additional compensation can be provided to the participants in the ACO as well as the uh, value-based enterprise. So with that, Kelly, uh, we've come to the end of this episode. I'd like to turn it over to you for our three Captain Integrity Punch Points. Okay. I think every PCP should be in an ACO. We've already said that. I think everybody should understand that Medicare shared savings ACOs are just one model, but there are every almost every big commercial carrier has a shared savings component to it. And this is all just on a path to taking full risk or being at risk for a population of people. And number three, this is good for society. It's good for the providers and it's good for the patients. It's a good thing. Yeah. And it's really improving quality of care. And, and it's a focus on outcomes versus, as a lot of people call it, the widgets. So you perform a work over you, you get paid. Uh, and there's more to it than that. So Kelly, why don't you give our listeners your contact information so people can get a hold of you? Sure. My email address is kconroy at askphc.com. And my cell phone is 561-385-7566. 
Well, Kelly, it's been my pleasure having you on Stark Integrity. And I hope that uh, with your expertise, I know I will be asking you to uh, participate again. So I'd just like to thank you for your participation. Well, thank you so much, Bob. It's been fun. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.